Hi, this is Pastor Corey. I hope this podcast will encourage you, strengthen your faith, and most importantly, help you draw closer to Jesus. Thank you for listening. Today I want to tell you the story of a beautiful and yet humble girl. She was orphaned and raised by a cousin. And yet, she helped literally save a generation of people. The story starts at a time when many of the Jews, they lived in Persia. Now, if you don't understand history and you don't understand battle lines, understand that Persia was not a friendly place to be living in at the time, but, you know, they were, the Jews were often, you know, taken captive throughout their history before Jesus came. And when Jesus came, they were still held captive, right? By the Romans, even though they lived in their own land. But there was many a times they didn't even, weren't even allowed to live in their own land. They were taken to some other land. And this is the case at this time in history that the Jews had been conquered and taken away into captivity. And then the Persians conquered the people that conquered them originally. And then they took over. And so you have all these Jews who've been conquered not once, but kind of like twice. Because the people that were once their masters, in a sense, had now been conquered and somebody else is. So they're the slave of a slave of a slave, in a sense. Like, it's, it's probably not a good place to be. So many of the Jews, as was often in their history, they were in exile. They lived in captivity in a place called Persia. And of course, as has been their history, they were living in a place that was very different from them. In a world of paganism. And what is paganism? Paganism is people who believe in multiple gods, and yet they are one of the only people of faith, especially throughout history, who were monotheistic and believed in a singular god, something that would be uh, used against them many a time, something that would cause them to be hated. They were surrounded by worldliness, and hatred. This is the atmosphere that they lived in. If I could really get across a to you, as I have many times before, if you've been here, is I want you to picture your family taken to Iran, and you are trying to live a Christian life in Iran. And yet Iraq conquers Iran, and then they come in, and the Iranians are suppressed, but you're even more suppressed. Like, do I speak English? Do I speak Iranian? Do I have to learn? Do they, do they all speak the same language? I don't even know. You're going to have to learn different things, a different way of living. Like They, they, they are all seeking certain aspects of, of what they want for their race, for their people, and I'm just a pawn in the middle of the whole thing. You and your family are held captive in Iran, not just for a, a few months, but for potentially years. What are you going to do? How are you going to live? How are you going to act? That's this case. That's, that's where they're at at this time in, in history. And over them was a king, and his king was named Xerxes. King Xerxes was somebody who was a huge partier. And the story I want to tell you about today, they've had like a six-month party, ended with a seven-day banquet. These guys were, were partying their lights out. And at the, the end of the seven days of the six months, where he has people from all over the world partying with him. 
all his royalty and noblemen, and they're all drunk and perverted. And all the wives are in a different place knitting. And he calls for his wife, the queen. And he wants her to come and dance sexually before him and all of his cronies while they're drunk. And she says what probably most women would say in today's world, in our country, but something that the king probably never heard, and that is the word no. And when his wife says no, what did it do? It instilled fear inside of the king. It instilled fear in front of his cronies. It instilled fear in them. It instilled fear in several of the men that were all partying together. Because they're thinking, my wife just heard your wife, the queen, say no. My wife's going to start telling me no now. And it kind of spread. And pretty soon they're thinking like all wives all around their country are going to say no to their husbands. Like it goes overboard. The fear drives this response to what are we going to do? And the answer is from the king, no matter what he thought of his wife at the time, is, you know what? I'm going to eliminate her. She's done. We're divorced. She's gone. She is history. And so he divorces his wife, sends out a decree unto all the land. Just in case you heard, my wife said no, and that's not okay for wives to say no to their husbands. Like, it, it, he sent it out. And then he says, I'm going to find me a new wife. And so what does he do? I'll just go get a new wife. How easy is that, right? That's pretty much modern day world. I'll get a new spouse. And so he sends people out amongst the land, and they go out looking for, you know, all of the young virgins that are beautiful, and they want to pick the best one. I have a feeling like whoever picked the best one and the, the one that he picks would probably have favor amongst the other people that were out there looking for women to become his wives. And so they gather up all these women and these women, I'm going to try and make it a short summary. These women, they have to go through a one-year process of preparing to meet the king. They have to prepare their bodies and be bathed in perfumes and all sorts of things like that. And then the idea is that each woman would go before the king and spend the night with the king. And then when he gets done going through all of the women, then he will decide which one pleased him the most, was most beautiful. You know, he'll have his little scorecard. Well, she was good looking. She was, you know, a nine out of 10. You know, when it came to being in bed, she was a seven. When it came to, you know, conversation, it was this. And, and then out of all of this criteria, he would decide which woman would become his wife. Wouldn't she be so lucky? And so the time comes, all of the women meet with the king. There's one of them that stands out for her beauty. There's one of them that pleased the king more than any other woman. And she's given the crown of the queen, and her name was Esther. Has anybody here read the book of Esther before? Nine short chapters. Very, in my opinion, powerful and interesting story that was inserted into God's word, the story of Esther. One night, Esther's cousin, who helped raise her, 
somewhat adopted her as his daughter. His name was Mordecai. He overheard a couple of guys talking about assassinating the king. And so he goes and tells Esther so that she's aware and she can tell the king. Mind you, I don't know if, if you, you guys, me, we're captive in Iran and there's an Iraq king over all of us that's persecuting us and who we are for our faith. If we heard a couple of dudes talking about killing him, that we would have said anything. Am I wrong? However, Mordecai, being a righteous man, knows what the right thing to do is. And even though the king was who he was, he still went and told the queen so she could save his life. The queen makes sure that the king knows and he is saved and the guards were caught and hanged and life goes on. Eventually, the king decides to choose a buddy to hang out with all the time, a right-hand man, kind of a prideful, arrogant guy who thought highly of himself. His name was Haman. Haman, I think, was a short guy. Most uh, short guys throughout history, whenever they gain power, they come up with this rule that people have to bow to them. And so Haman, being the right-hand man to the king, says that everybody in the kingdom, when they walk by him, they have to bow to him. And probably most people in fear would bow to Haman. But there was one person whose belief said that they don't bow to anybody but their one God. And he wouldn't bow to Haman. And it made Haman mad. That was Mordecai. And he hated Mordecai because Mordecai defied him. Because Mordecai would not bow to the fear. He wouldn't bow to the pressure. He wouldn't bow to man's laws over God's laws. And it was such a hatred that Haman didn't just hate Mordecai, but everybody that was like Mordecai. It stirred up such an anger in him that, that he wanted to destroy not just this one Jew, but he decided, you know what, I'm going to wipe all of them out. Once and for all, I'm, we're going to eliminate all Jews. And so what does Haman do? Haman picks up some dice. And it says that he cast lots. Him and his friends decide we're going to roll the dice and it's going to help us decide on what day that we're going to annihilate the Jews from this nation. And the dice were rolled and they came up with a specific day. Specifically, it was the 13th. Always made me think, you know, why do people not like the number 13? Potentially, this is why. I don't know. And then he goes before the king, Haman does, and he says to the king, you know, there's this group of people, and they all live a certain way, and, and their laws are different than your laws, and they don't do anything that you ask them to do. And he, he probably really paints a bad picture of the Jews. They're very rebellious, and, and they have their own way. And I think that we should make a law that we kill them on a certain day. And so the king comes into an agreement with him, puts out the law amongst the land. You know, what's interesting is it says that when the law went out, that the king and his right-hand man, Haman, they just got drunk. They celebrated. 
Everybody else in the land, they were filled with sorrow. Not just the Jews, but many a people knowing these people that have lived amongst them, that they've developed a relationship with, would now die too. And so when Mordecai hears the story, what's he do right away? He goes to his cousin who happens to be the queen and he pleads with her to go before the king and make sure that this gets stopped. But Esther is fearful. Even though she's the king's wife, if you knew what he did to his previous wife, he could do it to her. And she also knows the customs of the day was that anybody that couldn't just go before the king or it could cost them their life. You had to be called upon to go before the king. And so there was this fear, this hesitation inside of Esther. How do I go to him? Like he hasn't called me for 30 days, and yet you want me to just go before him. And she's not sure about it, and she sends the response to Mordecai. And Mordecai sends a response back to her that that challenges who she is. And so finally she agrees that she will go before the king no matter what, even if it costs her her life, because there's this expectation that if you're asking me to do this, It may cost me everything. And so what she did is she asked all of the Jews, you know what, please pray for me. Pray that God will work in this circumstance and ask them to fast and pray for three days. And so Mordecai and the Jews all over the entire land of Persia, in our story, Iran, begin to fast and pray for one of our own to stand up for who we are and to talk to the king. And as promised, Queen Esther, she goes before the king and he has favor on her. And so she requests to have a dinner with him and his right-hand man, his buddy Haman. And so they plan for the next night to, to get together and have a dinner. And so they leave their gathering that they had that night. And that night, Haman goes home, and Mordecai's still on his mind. And he shares with his family and friends that this dude drives him nuts, that he can't stand him, that he just he's so angry at him. And they all come up with this great plan the next day to have gallows built for him, that they're going to hang him. And he'll go to the king in the morning and ask him, you know what, can we hang Mordecai? Meanwhile, that night, the king couldn't sleep. Anybody here just have a restless night? I don't know what you do in a restless night, but I will sometimes have a restless night, and I try and find the most mundane thing that will put me back to sleep. And that's what the king did. He had one of his his men pull a book from the annuals of history and its recent history. And he has them begin to read everything that's taken place in his kingdom most recently. And as they're reading this story to him to help knock him back out, he comes across this story of when Mordecai came across the assassination plot. And then he told Queen Esther and Queen Esther told him and he was rescued. And he's like, whatever happened to this? I completely forgot about that. I have never given honor to this guy. And so he sets it in his heart that the next day he's going to do something special. Not quite sure what it is, but he's going to do something special. So he wakes up the next morning and he's like, is like any of my wise men, any of my buddies here? Because I want to talk to them about what might be special that I can do for this guy. And it just so happens that Haman shows up because Haman wants to talk to him about hanging Mordecai on the gallows that he has being built outside of his house right now. And so the king brings him in and he says, what can I do special for somebody that I really want to honor? And of course, Haman 
starts giving him this list of things that he can do. You can do this and this and this because Haman, in his prideful state, thinks that the king is about to honor him. The short dude, man, lift me up high. Put me in robes. Do all these special things for me and brag about me. And so then the king says, that's awesome. That's a great idea. Haman, I want you to go and do that for this guy named Mordecai. And so he has to do it, and he's humiliated. And if you can imagine, it stirs up the anger even more. And so that takes place in the morning. But in the evening, he has a dinner that he's looking forward to because he's the only one asked by the queen to be with the king at this dinner. And so they go and they have this banquet. And at the banquet, when Esther realizes that the moment is right, she tells the king that Haman has put a decree to destroy her his wife, the king's wife, because she happens to be a Jew also. And so he gets enraged when he realizes what he was deceived into doing. And then he has Haman hung on the same gallows as he built for Mordecai. And a king couldn't take back the law that he put forth, and so he decrees another law that the Jews come that day, they have the freedom to fight back. And so, as the story goes, come the 13th, the Jews began to fight. They destroy all of their enemies. Esther and Mordecai, they're given Haman's full estate as their own. All of Haman's sons are destroyed, which is important to understand, but I don't want to take any more time to go into it. But the entire family is wiped out. And then the Jews now have defeated their enemies. They celebrate. And there's a celebration that is still celebrated today on Esther and Mordecai's behalf, but more importantly, on God's behalf as the provider for his people, and a feast called Purim. Now, quickly, since I took five minutes to tell you a story, I'll give you seven lessons from the story of Esther. And I'll give you scripture, because I know that for some of you, summarizing the scripture wasn't as powerful as reading the scripture. So, Lesson number one, something that we've all heard a million times, but we need to be reminded of. God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. In Esther chapter 2, verse 7, Mordecai brought up Hadassah. That was her real name. That is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman was lovely and beautiful. When her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Esther 2.10, and Esther had not revealed her people or family to anybody, for Mordecai had told her, do not reveal who you are. Can you imagine living in a place where you are told, do not let anybody know what your nationality is? Don't let anybody know what your race is. Don't let anybody know what your history is. Don't let anybody know where you came from. That's how serious this was. 
living as a captive in a foreign nation, her parents both having died, and now she's an orphan who is adopted by the closest relative she has, a cousin. Can you possibly imagine? She is a female in a male-dominated society, a minority race in, in a nation that is full of people that hate her race. The truth is that Esther was not just ordinary. She was probably considered to be less than ordinary. And yet God would allow her the opportunity to carry out his plan that was ordained before she was even born, according to God's word, with a result that would last far beyond her death and still impacts thousands of generations of people from that day forward until today. And what that should say to you and I is that no matter what's going on around us, if we are willing as Christians to submit to God's will and go when and where, even if it's Erbil, Iraq, when he calls us to, that you too can carry the same privilege that Esther carried in saving people's lives for the glory of the kingdom of God. You are not too much less than Esther was. God will use ordinary people that nobody could even fathom could become somebody or something. He will pick those people out and use them for the glory of his kingdom. That includes everybody that is sitting here this morning. The second thing is, I don't know if this speaks to too many people, but a few, that there's no place of privilege that should ever exempt a person from the responsibility of God's call on their life. There's no place of privilege that should ever exempt some people, some Christians, from the call of God on their life. Now, there's people that attain certain positions in their life, and they don't necessarily want to sacrifice those positions or have those positions be taken away from them. And so, you know, they hide their Christianity. They don't want to say much about who they are as Christians. They can't talk about it because they don't want to lose their job, their kingdom, their wealth, their things in life that they've acquired, the things that God has blessed them with, right? But but we may want to think of the rich person that claims Christianity or the person that holds a position and, and put this phrase on them when the truth is that most of us here, according to the rest of the world, probably have some sort of privilege that we live in. And what are we willing to do? What are we willing to sacrifice for the call of God on our lives? Esther 4.16 says, go and gather all of the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me, Esther tells Mordecai, neither eat nor drink for these three days, night or day, my maids and I will fast likewise, and so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Can you imagine? Knowing that you were once a nobody that has now rose to the position of queen of this nation. Like you have been blessed, you've been given a life that's beyond ever, anything you could possibly even imagine. Everything is at the tip of your fingers that you would ever want in life. Everything that you have ever desired is available to you. A prominent position 
God has blessed her beyond a life that she could ever imagine. And if she does this one thing, standing up for what she believes, standing up for who she believes in, for the people that are a part of her, it could cost her everything. Now, I think that there might be a tendency for some Christians put in a position like this, as I said, to pull back from ultimately choosing what they know is right. There's, there's got to be another way. There's something else I can do. Maybe somebody else can go for me. Maybe, maybe I can just, you know, show people through my actions and not my words. And, you know, they can know me for the light of Christ and not the words of Christ. And, and maybe they, they'll just find out by happenstance and, you know, a, a roll of the dice. And by chance, you know, people will know that I, I'm a Christian and I can influence people that way. But to actually have to stand up to actually have to go before, to actually have to risk, to actually have to do something that could take all of this away from me, I don't know that I necessarily want to do that. Because to get involved would cost her her position, her livelihood, her home, her friends, and potentially her family. What would you and I do in a situation like this? And yet Esther provides a worthy example of faith that despite her privilege, she knows that perishing for faithfulness is far better than surviving due to faithlessness. The answer is when we're called upon, will we be willing to make the same sacrifice to remain faithful? Or are we going to be satisfied with surviving in faithlessness? Number three, Although a situation may look hopeless, with God, it is never helpless. In Esther chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, it says, Mordecai learned all that had happened. He tore his clothes. He put on sackcloth and ashes. He went out in the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went as far as from the front of the king's gates, for no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. In every province where the king's command and decree arrived, there were great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Why would so many people decide not only are they going to be brokenhearted over what's just been decreed, but they are literally going to publicly make the claim like we're crushed. I'm going to put on sackcloth, ashes all over my body. I'm going to go out and show people, listen, we are a crushed people. And that's exactly what they did. They were in a hopeless situation. Can we even possibly imagine what it would be like to live under such a decree? I want to ask you today, if Russia decided, you know what, just so all you Americans know, we're going to push the button on March 20th. And that's what we have to live under. China, Russia, they're going to team together. They're going to push the button on March 20th. You know what button I'm talking about. And all that is America will no longer be known. That's what we're talking about. That's modern-day terms of what they were facing, annihilation as an entire nation of people. How would we respond? What would we do? Would we bow out in hopelessness? Or we, would we understand that with God, 
there's never anybody that's helpless. God is not helpless. And so they go and they fast and they pray and they believe for something greater to happen. You know, I don't know if any of us can relate to such a story. The only thing I can think of is maybe the Jews potentially as they were being carried away off into concentration camps knowing that their day was coming when it was the days of Nazi Germany. But I know that we can relate sometimes to this sense of hopelessness. Maybe, maybe not ultimate hopelessness, but hopelessness for certain aspects of our lives, right? There's, there's times in our life where, where we will often ask the question, will this ever change? Will this ever change? Is anything ever going to change in this area of my life? Will I ever feel differently? Will this person ever change? Will they feel differently? Will this situation ever stop? Why do I constantly have to be dealing with this time after time after time after time? It's like the story of my life, it's began to define who I am, and there's hopelessness in that aspect of our life. And oftentimes, when we are in situations like that, our natural inclination is to try and find a way out of those circumstances, right? Isn't that the goal? That's the dream. That's the prayer. That's what we're, we're fasting for. Like that, That's all that we would desire is, Lord, remove me from this situation. And if I can't be removed, then we become angry. We become bitter towards God and towards other people. And I think that the story of Esther challenges us as Christians, as people of faith, to respond differently. Don't believe for one minute that the circumstances of your life are just mere coincidence, that life just keeps happening to you. Understand that it may well be that an all-knowing God has ordained certain circumstances to happen in every one of our lives to bring about his greater purpose. Maybe that's grand and it moves a nation of people and maybe it moves the nation of people that live next door to us that live within the same household as us. When you look at this story, we know because I just summarized it for you that the Jews gained victory. But listen to this. Do we realize that God didn't remove the Jews from the situation? They fasted and they prayed. There's going to be a day where the button is pushed. Everybody's annihilated. They still had to face the 13th. They still had to face their day of reckoning. There was a law given that they were set free. But their freedom was so that they could fight, so they could battle, so that they could war against, so that they could defend themselves. Not so that they just be able to now lay back, relax, and enjoy life and thank goodness those circumstances are no longer a part of who I am, but I've been set free to fight for who I am. And then, of course, when they actually did fight, they defeated their enemies, their immediate enemies. But understand, in the end, when it was all said and done, they were still captives in a foreign land. They were still in Iran. You and I, I didn't get to go back home. I'm still here. But you know what? They now had the freedom to be who they were. 
in their circumstance. To show their beliefs in their circumstance. To rise as a true nation of people in their circumstance. And they found hope while still in those circumstances. We may not immediately see God's hand at work in our lives oftentimes, but I do believe that if we remain faithful and courageous, that God will use us to accomplish his purposes, his glory in the bigger picture of life. Number four, there's no enemy over which the Lord cannot and will not prevail. This is just a word of encouragement. Esther 9.1, in the 12th month, that is the month of Adar, on the 13th day the time came for the king's command and his decree to be executed on the day that the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overcome them, the opposite, or the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overcome the Jews, the opposite occurred that the Jews themselves overpowered those who hated them. My encouragement to you is no matter what you're going through today, no matter what we see on the horizon of the world, that there is no enemy that God cannot defeat. There is none, not one, there is no army, there is no politician, there is no political party, there is no schemer, there is no demonic power, there is no earthly power. Isaiah 54, 17 says, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. Can somebody say no? There is no weapon that shall prosper. Every tongue which rises against you in judgment shall be condemned. There is no plot, there is no weapon, there are no words which will prevail against the Lord and his people. No enemies within and no enemies without, not even our own hearts will frustrate the plans of the Lord. His word says in Isaiah 59, his arm is not shortened that it cannot save. If he desires to do it, he will do it. Just as Mordecai tells Esther in the story, if you don't do this, then it will happen. But you and your family will be lost because God will save his people. Number five, there is no such thing as a chance as chance in a world that is ruled by a sovereign and divine king. There's no such thing as chance. Esther 3, 7, in the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Osarius, which is Xerxes, they cast pur, P-U-R. That's the idea of Purim. That is the lot. They cast the lot. They cast the dice before Haman to determine the day and the month until it fell on the twelfth month, which was the month of Adar. They decided that there were going to be results based upon dice. Just by chance. Just by chance. Let's roll the dice and let's see how fate is decided by chance, by the roll of a dice. How often do we live by chance? Uh, we don't ever want to admit it as Christians, but, you know, we, we do hope things just happen for us. Like, we do wish that we would get lucky once in a while in different ways. You know, there's just things that we think, you know, if this could just happen or if that could just happen. And, and there is some aspect of our lives that we still get pulled into that sort of living. But we need to look at the big picture here. This is, this is the only book in the Bible that doesn't mention the name of God. Some don't even know how it got to be in the Bible. There was, there's the question because all of the other books are typically about prophets who are speaking for the Lord. They're the history of the Lord being with his people. You know, even, even in uh, 
the Song of Songs and Ecclesiastes, like the writer doesn't mention God until the very, very end, the last two verses, but he's, he's still brought in. And so sometimes there's the idea that this is about a hidden God, but if you read the story, though God's name is not mentioned, this is like much of our lives. You can see God in every single detail of what took place. Was it by chance that Queen Vashti decided to stand up to the king and tell him for the first time in his life, no? Was it by chance he decides, I think I'm going to divorce her? He could have decided to stay married to her. Oh, I'll forgive her. But he didn't. He, he put her out. Is it by chance that Esther, out of all of the women, found favor in the eyes of the king? You're talking probably about hundreds of women across the land are brought, and this one woman is chosen. And is it by chance that that one woman just happened to be a, Jew, happened to be a Jew? And is it by chance that Mordecai happened to be standing next to two guys who were talking about assassinating the king? What a couple of lousy guys plotting something like that, right? Like, why would you be talking about it in front of anybody? But by chance, the guy that's the cousin of the queen just happens to be standing next to them and overhears their story so that it would give him favor on down the road. Was it by chance that the king had a restless night of sleep on that specific night? Was it by chance that he would tell his people, I want you to pull from the book of annuals and just pull out that one book, and they pull that exact book that just happens to tell the story of Mordecai most recently rescuing him from that assassination plot? Was it by chance that Haman the next morning would be the first one in the courts to be able to have the king call upon him so that he could go do what he wanted to do and hang Mordecai, but but the king tells him that he wants to honor Mordecai. Was it by chance that Esther had gained direct access to the king because of her possession as the queen? Was it by chance? If any single event had not occurred, the Jews would have been wiped out once and for all. The Nazis wouldn't have had to worry about anything. Because they would have been gone. They were out to destroy every single one of them. And listen, it's interesting to me that the story starts with the enemies rolling the dice to determine the day on which God's own people would be annihilated. And then it ends with a feast commemorating the people's deliverance and vindication from that moment of chance. And in God's sovereignty, he says, I want this to be an annual feast forever celebrated called Dice. I mean, we have Passover. We have Shavuot. We have all these other feasts, and their terms have something to do with, you know, God and his deliverance and God protecting them and bringing them out of Egypt from him being with them as they traveled around in their tabernacles, Sukkot. And then there's this feast, and God wants his people to remember dice. Like, here's this feast of irony. I want you guys all to joyously celebrate and remember every single year 
that when the, the rest of the world thinks that the earth just keeps on turning, when the rest of the world thinks that things just happen, when the rest of the world thinks that there are some people that are lucky and some that are unlucky, I want all of you to celebrate that you know that there is no such thing as luck, that you know there is no such thing as coincidence, that you know there is no such thing as chance, that you know that dice cannot, will not at any time determine any outcome. Because even in the little things, God is still in control. Why not celebrate a feast like that? Number six, the Jews face their circumstances as one, not as individuals. Esther 4.3, and in the province where the king's command and decree arrived, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes among all of the Jews. Esther 9, 20 through 22, Mordecai wrote these things and sent letters to all the Jews near and far who were in all of the provinces of King Hasarius to establish among them that they should celebrate yearly the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar as the days on which the Jews had rest from their enemies as the month which was turned from sorrow to joy for them and from mourning to a holiday that they should make them days of feasting and joy of sending presents to one another and gifts to the poor. Listen, as much as we want to make this a story about Esther, Esther's, Esther was a great person that we can look to as an example of faith. But this isn't a story that's just about Esther and her rise to fame or a story about her cousin Mordecai and, and his boldness to influence many people, including Esther herself. This isn't a story about a couple of individuals as much as it is about God's people being in this journey together called life. Esther did this for her spiritual family. Mordecai did this for his spiritual family. The scriptures say that all of them fasted and prayed together to see God move through certain individuals on behalf of the whole family. It was a togetherness amongst those people. There are times when people here go through things and there's things in our lives that bring great joy and, of course, things that bring great sorrow. And while being around people doesn't ever take sadness away, it does provide comfort and strength when you have those people in your life. And then when the sorrow is gone and there's the joy that comes, I don't know about you, but to me it makes that joy that much greater together. It's one thing to celebrate as an individual. It's another thing to celebrate as a team, to celebrate as a family, to celebrate with a gathering of, of like-minded believers. And I believe this is why, like Paul would tell the church in Rome in 1215, to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. Because God desires us not to do it as individuals, but to go on this journey of joy and sadness together as a family. My final point is this. Her story is your story is his story. Now, I didn't quite know how to end this sermon. What I did want us to, again, be cognizant of is that God chose a woman who once had everything taken from her, right? her parents, her freedom, her virginity. 
and he gave her everything. And then he used someone who, due to gender, culture, and circumstances, on the surface would have appeared to be powerless and invisible. And he made her the star of his story. And better yet, where the victory in Esther was temporary, we have Jesus Christ. And the victory of the cross is eternal. And God can and will and desires to bring about new life, redemption, and freedom, even when it seems like an impossible feat. And that means there is no mundane thing that just happens in life. Our lives are not based on chance. We have a cosmic significance when we are in the hands of the Lord. I want you guys to believe that in this fear-filled world that we have a God that should cause us to rather than shrink away, rise up in faith and believe that he will do what he will do and he desires to do it in me and in you.